I remember I was sitting on the couch and my heart started racing and I was getting short of breath and my like full body instinct was to run to the bathroom. Like I just needed to get out and I needed to hide. And I remember running to my bathroom, closing the door and just like dropping to the ground. So out of breath, so nervous and scared that like, this was this was it like i i was so out of my body i remember being so worried i was never going to catch my breath again welcome to the clinician life podcast i'm emma jack and i'm joined by my co-host daryl yardley and together we're on a mission to help you elevate your practice to new heights Join us each week as we bring you invaluable insights from some of the world's leading clinicians, from staying ahead of industry trends to crafting your dream career and life. We've got you covered. Get set to unlock your full potential. Here we go. Briefly outline, like what were some of those key milestones in your journey as a clinician that brought you to where you are today? Yeah, I mean, I look back and I was the strange kid at age 12 who told people she wanted to be a physiotherapist. Um, I, like so many other PTs, I was in physio at a young age. I adored my PT and just looked up to her so much. And pretty much at age 12, I was like, I'm going to be a physiotherapist. And every step I took from then on, I did a high school co-op placement in that clinic. Um, I did kin at McMaster. Mm-hmm. I worked with the uh, men's football team at McMaster as like a student trainer uh, because I, I knew I wanted to be a physio and I wanted to get that like on-field yeah. experience. Fast forward, got into physio school, worked so hard to get there and honestly would not get into physio school now if I tried. Uh, it's wild. <laughs> Some of the grades, I did not have those grades, um, yeah. but got into physio school did physio school after physio school i wanted to specialize in sport physio and uh applied for the fellowship at fowler kennedy at western and got granted one of those fellowship spots did my sport physio fellowship got my sport cert got my sport dip uh took you know uh all of the ortho div courses during that time i was just like consuming all the knowledge that i possibly could you name the course you name the credential i probably have it in some way shape or form um continue to work at fowler uh after my fellowship and ultimately in 2016 i did another master's degree at western uh the uh, masters of clinical science uh in manual therapy, I think is what it was called at the time, uh, to challenge for my FCAMP um, designation. And yeah, I thought every step along the way, I was becoming like the best possible physio. Like I had so many amazing mentors and people I looked up to and they all had like done these things and had these credentials. And I had put every ounce of my being into becoming that truly from the age of 12 uh, onward. And I remember hitting probably close to 30 and being so miserable. You know, it was really that year that I 
was so focused on my clinical uh, science degree at Western. I was working full-time uh, in clinic still, or maybe I was working part-time, but full-time, you know, doing a master's degree in physio and then being a physio. And yeah. five years into my career, I just had this big, not this moment. I found myself super anxious, overwhelmed, wicked imposter syndrome. It was like the more courses I took, the worse mm -hmm. I felt, the more confused I got, the more I felt like I didn't have the right answers. And it was really that moment that changed the tra trajectory of my career, realizing I've done all of the things that sort of PT culture would tell me you know, mm -hmm. I should do, and that will make me a great PT. And I did all of those things. I checked literally all of the boxes. Yeah. And I remember having this moment of just being so upset of like, that didn't work. Mm -hmm. I did all the things that should have made me feel really great in this career. And it doesn't feel as good as I thought it was going to. Yeah. And I, I actually didn't realize that you and I both did the clinical masters. And I, and I, oh. one of the things I remember is that Pad feel yelling at me. <laughs> you told me you're gonna only work part-time but I know you're working full-time and your assignment grade proves this mm. <laughs> so yeah so it was I can full on it. it was full on yeah but I think in your journey it's kind of interesting right like kin taping ankles as a sport you know mm -hmm. like as a trainer as a volunteer getting into PT school going through the system being you know, influence positively on the, you know, manual therapy side. Cause you guys oh, absolutely. You were, you were trained well by Greg yeah, yeah. Um, Spadoni. And I think it's kind of interesting. So uh, what I'm curious about before we kind of get into where you did your little pivot, yeah. would you said it was imposter syndrome or do you think it was actually more like burnout? Um, I think, I think it was a perfect storm of so many things knowing more about myself now and who I am now looking back it was a deep seated perfectionism and wanting to mm -hmm. be perfect for everyone and every client who came through the door mm -hmm. and that was really what drove me to take all the courses because I thought you know more knowledge better outcomes mm -hmm. um, and I kept on thinking that was what needed the solution when actually the solution was so much to do with who I was and how I showed up in the world. It was not about more knowledge. Um, and, and so I think it was that drive to be the best or, you know, feel really good in my career. And so some of that was not feeling good enough and that sort of, um, you know, imposter scenario. Um, some of it was working among the best and and not finding my own worth, not seeing my worth, just comparing to people who had done it for literally 20, 25 years and thinking I should be there. Um, mm -hmm. there, was, there was a lot driving it. I think I thought too, that I would feel more confident mm -hmm. um, knowing more or being able to have more skills or people would perceive me as better if my credentials were in alphabet soup. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting. I like what you, you kind of coined the PT culture, right? It was sort of yeah. just what you were expected to do, or mm -hmm. you were kind of encouraged to do, if you will, even though no yeah. one really said you have to do this, right? Totally. Like, no one did that. Um, but similar journey to you is like 100%. That was my pathway too. what I'm, what I'm curious of though, is your thought that was on understanding your own value. And even when you, and we always tend to realize on the imposter syndrome side, we compare ourselves to others. We put others on yeah. the pedestal. 
But some of the people that I put on a pedestal never wanted to be put on a pedestal. Like, what do you think drove that? Like Jackie Staney. I yeah. never said like, Daryl, you're, you're going to take 20 years to get to where I am. Never once did she say this. She only taught me to say, you're good now. You got to figure it out. Yeah, it, it's it's missing self-trust and self-confidence. And mm -hmm. so we we look for reasons why we can't be there yet, right? Because then we don't have to be. Self-driven. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. That's, that's actually really, really interesting, right? Is because if you think about understanding what are the value drivers and what do what is the end consumer, which is our patients, what do they identify as quality? It's not the alphabet soup. That's actually internal. It's not external, totally. yeah. which is interesting, right? Yeah. Um, I would say in the last, not that I like from an Afghan perspective, I do it all over again. And we've chatted about this before, but I haven't had a referral in the last five years that has come to me because they've known that I have that designation. Yeah. yeah. It, I, you know, it, it, that whole experience in that program, you know, I, I have no regrets taking yeah, it because it gave me so much beyond the sort mm -hmm. of hands-on skills. I look at, you know, some of the leadership positions I take on now and, you know, even the confidence to express who I am in my voice. And I think mm -hmm. in a very subtle way, so much of that was developed in that year. Yeah. You know, I think the leader, if you look at people who take that program, so many of those people become leaders in the field in some sort of way. You know, you, mm -hmm. you look at people who graduates and I think, damn, I'm proud to be a part of that that group and that cohort. Um, but it was, I went into it thinking it was about hands-on skills. Yeah. That, and I and came that, out of it knowing it's nothing to do yeah. with the hands-on skills. Yeah. Super interesting that you said that too, Emma, because interestingly enough, like some of my connections came through that. Some of my leadership roles, as you said, came yeah. through that. But then again, you also hear a lot of people, kind of what you said, and lots of people echo the fact that I actually felt more confused after some of those training sessions. But I'm almost wondering too, is because when we go in thinking like this is really just about clinical reasoning and clinical skill development, we actually forget about everything else that we're actually learning. Maybe yeah. kind of maybe it seems passive potentially, but at yeah. the end of the day, like clinical skills confusion aside, like you literally grew as a professional throughout that program. It just yeah. wasn't documented on paper. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And like hard, I still to this day find it hard to fully articulate. You know, if somebody asked me about the program, because I think you almost can't know what it is going to give you until you're like in the thick of it. Um, and I, I think that's true for for so many life experiences in general. You go in with one expectation and you're you're handed something else that's mm -hmm. you know maybe even something better, but you don't recognize it in the moment. Yeah. So is this yeah. We just confirmed that we should invite Jackie Sadie to this uh, podcast. Oh my gosh. I would love to chat with Jackie Sadie. I'm putting Jackie on the list as we speak. All right. <laughs> okay. So let's, let's kind of go to the TSN turning point though. So you kind of got to this stage. You, yeah. you have every, you know, checkbox on your resume. It's extensive. It's just as long probably as your CV. <laughs> exactly. But what was the TSN turning point though for you? Yeah. So honestly, I remember... I remember this night like it was yesterday and still even sometimes talking about it like I can viscerally feel it. It was a Sunday night, um, like so many Sunday nights I had had previously, but um, where, you know, sort of come 
after dinner, I start thinking about the week ahead. And I had for a number of weeks been, you know, getting sort of those quote unquote Sunday scaries, thinking about the week ahead and what my clinic day, you know, was going to look like uh, on the Monday. And I remember I was sitting on the couch and my heart started racing and I was getting short of breath and my like full body instinct was to run to the bathroom. Like I just needed to get out and I needed to hide. And I remember running to my bathroom, closing the door and just like dropping to the ground. So out of breath, so nervous and scared that like, this was, this was it. Like I, I was so out of my body. I remember being so worried. I was never going to catch my breath again. And luckily I did. Um, but I remember coming down from that panic attack. I was having a panic attack. I remember just such an overwhelming sense of like, girl, you, you, got to start listening to yourself. Like I had been denying everything I had been feeling because on the outside, it was like, I almost felt guilty not loving my life. I had built the life that I had been trying to build for over a decade. And here I was hating it. And having that panic attack really scared me into making a change. I, that was my sign of like, I'm never letting this happen again. Um, and that's when things switched. That's when I started, you know, I started going to therapy. I started, um, you know, journaling more like all the things, listening to personal development, reading personal development. Um, and I did take a leave of absence from, uh, my clinic job. Mm-hmm. It's funny. I don't actually, I think I always say it was six weeks and I don't actually know if that's true. It was an extended period of time. And I got on a plane and I went to Scandinavia. I literally Googled safest place to travel alone. And Scandinavia was it. And I just got back to myself on that trip. I let myself have fun. I thought nothing about physiotherapy. And it was mm-hmm. the first time in probably over two decades that I hadn't had a goal or something I was working towards. I just let myself have fun. And it was on that trip I remember being like, this is what I was missing. I hadn't been having fun. I hadn't been playing. I hadn't just been being myself, Emma. Mm -hmm. I had been physio Emma for so long. That was all I knew. And it was just not serving me. And coming back from that trip, I made a promise to myself. Like physio can be a part of me and it can be a great part of me, but it is not all of me. Uh, I need to cultivate an identity outside of my career. And so like, take a pause on courses, (laughs) take a pause on like, you know, all of this career focused stuff. And I really got back to myself and the process of doing that was Mm -hmm. such a gift and has given me so much more than I could have ever imagined. That's, that was when, and it was literally um, six years ago yesterday, I started a blog and an Instagram account. Pure goal of that was just a creative outlet to learn something new and different. It had nothing to do with physio. I shared recipes. I like interviewed friends and like mentors and started my Instagram account. And that was like, that was my lifeline at the time. Um, Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize in doing those things that I was actually building something so much bigger Um, because what's happened since then has been wild. <laughs> yeah. And the thing that's interesting too, we we talk about it often around entrepreneurship, right? It's typically 
you know, there's, there's that moment that, you know, some sort of life event that does happen that causes people to actually do a couple of things, like obviously completely pivot, which is what you did. And this entrepreneurial mindset came out in you too, right? Which is kind of the journey on before. So I actually have two questions and thanks for sharing that. And like, obviously this is a key piece in your career, but it's also not easy to talk about. Um, what, what were some maybe of the warning signs that you, maybe because you were wearing your physio Emma hat, you kind yeah. of ignored, like, is there certain warning signs in there that, oh you, my gosh. that you now, in hindsight, you're like, oh, I should have listened to myself. So like so many, um, there were so many body signals, you know, for somebody who works with other people's physical body. I was so deeply unaware of my own physical body. I was getting headaches. I had like joint pain and so much tension. I had a sense of like apathy, I think, towards the work I was doing um, and how I would, you know, I was starting to view clients in a very apathetic way, which wasn't, you know, deserved by them at all. Um, I, I definitely, you know, had a lot of internal dialogue before work. You know, if I started at noon, I would spend from the moment I woke up until noon thinking about the workday. Um, I, I always, you know, would have that dialogue. I'd have like two dialogues. I was not present with my clients. You know, I was physically with the client, but I was mentally so, so much chatter was happening in my head. Um, And I think there was a lot of guilt around having, quote unquote, it all um, Mm. and feeling like I had nothing. So I I put that off for a really long time and sort of downplayed it and tried to justify. I think that's Mm. what I did. I was doing a lot of justification of, oh, I should be happy or this should, you know, it sounded good. It sounded so good to tell people at a dinner party the work I did in the world and the opportunities I had. Um, And I didn't let myself feel how hard it actually was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's interesting too. And if you think about it, it kind of lit the flame on the entrepreneurial side, right? And I think actually, when yeah. you look at you know a lot of clinicians these days and like the healthcare industry, it's probably the most entrepreneurial it's ever been, right? Especially, mm-hmm. yeah. Would you say though, like as you were doing a lot of your postgraduate work, did you did you think you were an entrepreneur? Did you actually ever want to be an entrepreneur? Mm. So I definitely grew up in an entrepreneurial family. Um, I was, my, my dad is an entrepreneur through and through. My sister had her own business, has, has her own business, but had her own business at that time too. Um, I didn't really see it to myself. I, I never said I want to own a clinic one day. Um, what flipped the switch for me though, was realizing I knew what I needed to thrive in this profession mm. and to think that somebody else could give me that exact checklist of what I wanted, I realized wasn't realistic. I had sort of worked at a few clinics and there was always something just like I didn't quite agree with or was a little off or didn't jive with me. And I realized that like, okay, if I'm gonna stay in this profession, I need to do it my way. And my way couldn't be anybody else's way. And so that was really my driver to start my own practice was I knew I was gonna have so much more control over the parameters and I could build it in a way that really supported me and what I needed in order to thrive. 
Um, mm-hmm. So that was really the driver for me personally. Um, I, I still to this day, I'm kind of shocked that I do have my own practice because it wasn't really on the checklist. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was really born out of necessity. I, I truly do believe that had I not made that move, I, I maybe wouldn't be in the profession. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yeah. Well, yeah. and it's interesting too, because I think we hear oftentimes that a lot of people, with the owners that we work with too, is, you know, what made you decide to open your own practice? It was sort of similar thing, right? Like I had this vision and I had these values that I wanted to actually execute on. Yeah. What becomes, I think, some of the challenge though is, you know, trying to find those individuals to those additional providers, those additional staff that also encapsulate those same values that allow you to expand that vision. Yeah. I practice, but that creates a whole other problem list. Sure right? does. Sure does. Or challenge, which yeah, like, challenge. is another challenge, right? So, so how, so for like advice for people too, right, is like it's easy to become an end of one. But it's actually yeah. really hard to create a business for others to flourish in as well, which you've also pivoted quite interestingly too. Yeah. But like, what would be your advice to people though? Is like growing an end of one business is actually hard to do. Yeah. And I think it's so important to recognize and maybe even give voice to that it won't be perfect for them. This is, mm-hmm. this is your business, so it can't be absolutely perfect, but that you're open and, and are able to hold space for what would help them feel better mm-hmm. in this space. And I think, you know, when people are given the right environments and parameters to thrive, and often they know mm-hmm. best, so it helps them thrive, if we can hold space for that. And, you know, I think there's obviously a ton of compromise there, but not pretending that it is going to be perfect, because it won't be um and and making concessions or changes when you can and having people also understand that if you do want you know the literal perfect you kind of have to do build you do have to build it yourself um and with that becomes you know there's a lot of extras that go with that and i think inherently some people want that and you know thrive in that and some people don't want that and don't want that extra responsibility and so that's you know the give and take yeah, because it's interesting, right? When you think about it, you know, I can tr- control my own mortgage as an end of one, but then, you know, right now I'm responsible for 14 mortgages. Like when right. you think about it with what's at yeah. the clinic, you're like, like all of a sudden it's like with great power comes great responsibility. Great responsibility. Right? Something to yeah. think about. But the the part that I'm, I think you've, you know, you've hit on so much of it already, but I'm even thinking just to summarize, I'm like, if you were to think, you know, what are some of those misconceptions or myths that actually exist in this clinical world, right? Like, I think that, yeah, the biggest one for me is that we're all meant to practice the same way that, mm-hmm. you know, you're either in the hospital or in a private clinic, you're either, you know, you're working on half hour appointments and you're seeing the general public and like, this is what it is. You're, this is the only option. And I really think people need to be given the opportunity to look at themselves and where they they thrive and how they operate and how they work best and translate that into, okay, then how do I best serve as a physiotherapist? Because I think when we really allow ourselves and our unique expression to come out, we show up better and are better able to serve people. So, you know, the model that we're sort of, again, mm-hmm. 
sort of PT society driven, the model that we're shown doesn't have to be the model that you operate under. There's so many opportunities um, that exist, so many opportunities Mm -hmm. that will exist that we don't, we aren't even aware of yet that somebody hasn't created. Um, But it doesn't just have to be what's always been done in the way it's always been done before. Um, There's Mm -hmm. so much room for innovation and for allowing your uniqueness to come through. Yeah. And Emma, what would you say for those that like from a common misconceptions is that I don't know enough or I'm not good enough, right? Like I see this. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like what would you tell that group? Because it's a big group. It's a big group. I I was like chairman of that group for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's, it's not a PT problem. And it's not even a problem. Let's not label it a problem. But that is something that's coming up to hold a mirror up that there's some self work to need that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Right? There's an element of you that doesn't feel worthy, doesn't feel good enough. And that's not something that something outside of you can fix. That's why I grabbed for all of these courses. I thought this course will make me more confident. This course will make me feel more worthy. And nothing outside of you will make you feel good enough or like you know enough or worthy that's inner work Mm. um and it's deeper and it's harder i will say but the gift for you on the other side where you are no longer attached to needing outside things in order to feel good is such a gift so um i think that's really what those kind of tendencies are calling for Mm-hmm. And it, it it can be attractive and feel more comfy to grab yeah. onto more courses or more credentials, but it's never mm-hmm. going to be the fix. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, right? Because it's almost like, you know, it's it's a little bit of the, you know, it's a bit of a scapegoat in a way, but it's totally. still a relevant component, right? That there's still yeah. going to be people that need to still develop clinical skills and yes. you know, clinical acumen, right? I, I get that. But what's actually really interesting, you're not, you're one of few influential people that I've chatted with recently that all actually had a therapist that they worked with, like stick, yeah. like we need to remove that stigma. And there was another gentleman, he literally went from one clinic to 22. And he's, I was like, what was your secret? He's like, I need worked to, on himself. Yeah. He goes, I need to get my head on mm-hmm. my ass. And I was like, yeah. Oh, and how do you do that? Everyone's yeah. minds there often. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and he was like, I had to work with a therapist. So it's kind of yeah. interesting, right? Because I think the trajectory of the large group that you were the chair of, you know, I was <laughs> on that bus too, right? Is yeah. we would just take another course. But what you've said too is like, okay, there, you need to actually be able to kind of have two, two lists, right? Like we talk about two problem lists. I have my clinical problem list and I have my patient's problem list. And my job is to be able to figure out how am I going to actually get this patient to achieve their problem list, right? Their goals. Yeah. Same thing too for us is like, if, if my problem though, for the most part is clinical and a lack of my own belief in my worthiness or my value, it can't just be a one-sided problem. We know that if I yes. only put on my, my physio problem list for my patient, I don't get the outcome that I should get. That's right? where it's, it's the, it's the come from that's important here. Mm-hmm. If it's, I want to learn dry needling because I'm finding I'm using soft tissue and I've tried, you know, all these other things and it's, mm-hmm. I I think I could help patients get better faster. 
Mm-hmm. Great. Go take dry needling. If the come from is I'm going to take dry needling because then people will see that I have this credential and think I'm more experienced and I have this extra tool, which will make me better. That's where we want to check the story. Right. Um, yeah. And so really looking at what really is at the root of of wanting these outside credentials, mm-hmm. courses, whatever it is. Yeah. And, and we do quite a bit of work too recently with uh, like a patient I have as an advisor. And one of the things that she always will say to a group of clinicians is why do you guys play so small? Mm. It doesn't really resonate right away, but with a lot of clinicians, because at first it's like, well, what does that mean? But listening to what you're having to say too, it's, it's actually really critical is like, you're the expert. Yeah. Well, you will use bunny. Yeah. Yeah. but I have a problem and I need you to help me solve it, right? Like patient to yeah. therapist. No one's really coming into clinics in 90% plus of cases saying, I need the person that's going to check this bucket list for me of credentials. Yeah. They just need somebody to actually listen actively, mm-hmm. collaborate and come up with a plan and use the tools that they have, right? And one of the things that's kind of interesting, if there maybe isn't that maybe skill or that tool within your toolbox. Not that I love to say that, but then you have colleagues that can help you, right? Or you have future (sighs) development if you need to. But the one thing that always sort of creates is the part that from a patient's perspective is like, why do you play so small? And kind of what I'm hearing from you too, is like, you've almost created that stuff, right? For yourself. And if that is where you kind of present yourself being small, you can take another course if you want, but until you present yourself as a larger entity for a patient, they're still going to question your level of expertise. Yeah. And I I don't know some, another thing I see so often, and I know I was, I I can only speak for myself, but you know, so much of the journey to becoming a PT, you have to be a freaking rock star, especially these days, you got to get the grades, you know, you got to learn the material, spit it back out, get the grade, move on. And that, you know, I took so much worthiness from that, right? Oh, I'm Mm -hmm. doing good. I feel good. Oh, I'm doing well. I do well, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And when you get into the real world, when I had a patient who came back and is like, I'm not, either they were, you know, the same or worse, I took that as an F. And I took that Mm -hmm. so much to heart and made it mean something about me as a person because mm-hmm. I had so much practice with that in the academic system along the way that mm-hmm. once I got out into the real world, I wasn't, I, I wasn't resourced to handle that or to understand that it had nothing to do with my worthiness. Right. Um, and I think I, it's easy to get caught up in that of when my patients are getting better, I feel good. I am good. When my patients aren't getting better, I am bad. I feel bad. Um, yeah. and, it's actually and getting yourself off that train is so key. Yeah. And if you think about the life skills that we, you, you experience along the way, some will hit, some will hit those life like experiences harder than others and quicker than others yeah. sometimes. But like, it's almost like this form of rejection, right? Like I tried totally. this thing and I get comes back and they're like, yeah, it didn't work. And yeah. it all you hear in your head is like, well, Emma, you suck. You failed. Right? You failed. Yeah. And I had never failed. I, Daryl, I didn't fail anything. Mm. I, I was the girl who like got A's through everything. I hadn't experienced failure 
until I was out working as a physio. Yeah. And I think that's one reason it was so self-effacing. I, I didn't have the skills to deal with it. Yeah. Like you, you almost need to learn like one of your first transitional courses, right? From transition of being a PT student or any student in healthcare yeah. to real practice, you need to understand how to deal with rejection and let's say your own self-perceived failure. A hundred percent. And like the fact that you're working with humans and so it's not going to be perfect. Mm -hmm. um, I had tried to achieve perfection in every element of my life to control myself and protect myself from failure um, yeah. and didn't realize that when you're working with a, another human, it is not always going to work. And that means nothing about them, nothing about you. It just mm -hmm. didn't work. And that's okay. But I, I didn't have that skill. And I think it's, it's an important and necessary skill. But, and it's, but it's not a hard skill. That's the challenge, right? And, yeah. you, and you've done tons yeah. of work with Jim, and we're going to have Jim Millard on here too. But that's the problem, right? Like, I think it's inherited. Like, it would be deemed another soft skill. If you think about it. Yeah. Right? It's yeah. just like education. But at the end of the day, these are some of the hardest, oh. like, scenarios that we face that we lack the power or the expertise in that literally downward spirals people. It's right? it, so much of what we struggle with is our own personality, mm -hmm. our own upbringing, our own stories, our own perspective. It's nothing that objectively is wrong or bad. It's what we're making it mean. Um, yeah. and, and that's, so I would encourage people, you know, if this stuff is coming up, don't keep it surface level. Yeah. You got to get help. It, it, it is important. You know, I look at the work, you know, again, that I did with, with therapists and, and with coaches, and I continue to work to a coach mm -hmm. with a coach to this day and will continue uh, for this foreseeable future. And it's, it's such a gift and it helps me, you know, continuing to work with a coach has helped me be able to show up for my PT mm -hmm. clients and my coaching clients as a clear vessel with no stories and I can be present and I can serve them so much better. And it's like such a roundabout journey of like realizing all I needed to serve people the best was to be myself. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and I spent so long trying to be these other things and have these other mm -hmm. skills and be these other people, but just being me and being so present and open for people, mm -hmm. I'm able to do so much more for them. Yeah. It, and I think what's interesting too, I mean, we say like when you need think about, well, you need to get help, but again, it almost shows a weakness, right? But when you think about mm -hmm. taking a clinical course, you never think like, oh, I need help. You're like, no, I'm going to take this next course. Yeah. It's going to make me a better clinician. You can almost, it almost like just hearing you chat today and how I've processed it over the years. It's like, it's almost like, it's like the expected thing to do. Whereas when yeah. I think about like, oh, I need some help to actually help me on the, my personal development side it's like you just admitted a weakness admitted a weakness but it's like no different than like taking a course right like not at all you're just it's like the best course you'll ever take <laughs> yeah you're investing in yourself instead of investing in a clinical skill yeah both are important but you have to be able to weigh in which one do you prioritize over another and that's why i think what's really interesting is that you can't really just follow somebody else's checklist is what exactly. you said earlier yeah. And I think you answered this question, but I think this is important for maybe us to summarize for people though, is like, now when you think about, you know, the practical tip or the advice you would give to people to thrive in life, 
but still have financial well-being and stability, like what would it be? Mm. I think it's so important to put some blinders on to what everybody else is doing Mm. and have the ability to access what it is you want to create in this world and how you want to do it. Mm. Because the people who really thrive financially and otherwise are the people who are doing it their way. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't need to look like or operate like anybody else. Um, I think when you tap into what works best for you, the financial piece comes with it. I've seen it time and time again. And resisting that or trying to take somebody else's path is, I mean, it is resistance and it is hard. And um, oftentimes the financial piece doesn't come along with it. And so it really is a process of, you know, you can take inspiration and draw on others for, you know, for belief that it's possible Mm -hmm. for you. But I think it's so important to know your needs and, and stick with that, be different because that is where abundance will find you. Yeah. And I think what you had said earlier too, like whether it's finding a coach or it's a therapist or it may be, but your, your professional development line should almost be a little bit behind your personal development line. Yeah. Right. Like that growth line, I should say. Um, But it's hard to do, but that's why I love that advice about, you know, put your blinders on, like, where do you see yourself? Because otherwise it would have been physio Emma grinding to a halt versus Emma, who's now doing very well professionally and your financial well-being is. A hundred percent. Like that's, that's just it. I mean, I guess that's where the advice comes from is I look at, you know, the work I get to wake up and do every day and how much it lights Mm -hmm. me up and excites me and fulfills me. Mm -hmm. And I look at my bank account and it is drastically different uh, in a positive way from Mm -hmm. what it was back then. Right. And, and so, you know, I've seen it, um, you know, clients that I've worked with and coached see it too. Um, And it's, you know, at the beginning, you do have to have, you know, a bit of a leap of faith and maybe borrow some belief from other people. Um, Mm -hmm. But it is absolutely a universal truth. Yeah, for sure. And I think other than my like paused face there that looked like I wasn't very interested in this, I promise. So it's a good thing we're not putting the, the, the actual video clip of this up but the last thing that I'm curious of and I and we you and I chat about this before we went live and we've chatted about this thousands of times with others for sure is like no one's going to listen to our advice that we would tell our younger self but we really want people Mm -hmm. to at least process this okay so if you were going back to PT school all over again Mm -hmm. knowing what you know now what would you tell that younger a student GPA of I don't know 3.9 Like, what would you tell her now? Yeah, I think the first thing is your worth is not linked to what you accomplish. That was something she needed to know, like really know and hear. Um, And let yourself go on the ride. You know, I think I had very early predetermined where I wanted to be. But Mm -hmm. by the time I got there, I was such a different person. It no longer was what I wanted. You know, Mm -hmm. I had changed. There was decades between, you know, when I had decided to go on this journey versus, um, you know, when I got there. And so allow yourself to change. 
it's okay to change. It's okay to change your mind. It's okay to change your scope of practice. It's okay to change your profession entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, only you know that. And, you know, I mean, everybody's beliefs are different, but, you know, we only got one life to live. So um, allow yourself to be flexible and change as you flex and change because in- inevitably you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think we need to like change an entry interview question or something is, you know, what, how do you, how do you identify the value in yourself before you get into PT school? Yeah. yeah if we could just do some like baseline screening questionnaires, I think yeah. that would I be mean, helpful. Support for concussion. Like it can't yeah, be exactly. Right? Exactly. Um, um, and yeah, there's so many opportunities that exist now, you know, with, and there's so many skills we gain as PTs that I think hmm. we look at as only serving as a physical therapist, but coming out of school, we are so equipped to hold space for people, be in deep conversation, problem solve, critical think. Like there's so many skills we have and you can take them wherever you want to go. Um, and so don't think that you have to stay in one lane, private practice, hospital, as a PT. There's so many, you have so many skills and abilities that can be used in such a vast array. Never in a million years did I think I would have a podcast. Here we are. Yeah, you have two. <laughs> I have two. <laughs> what? Two. So crazy. True. So crazy. Yeah. So yeah, let yourself yeah. go on the journey. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, let's end on that, Emma. Um, okay. Let yourself go on the journey and then we'll be back uh, next week, same time, and we'll do the exact same thing and we'll I'll let you interview me. Oh, I can't wait. All right. Good so stuff. Fun. All right, Emma. Until next week. Have a good Bye. one. Bye. And that's all for today. Thanks for tuning into today's episode and joining us on this journey to get smarter in business and life by learning from the top clinicians in the world. Make sure to connect with me on Instagram at Daryl Yardley and be sure to follow my co-host Emma at Press Play Physio to stay connected. And also visit us at clinicianlife.com for more resources, articles, and opportunities to participate in the show. We'd love to have you on to share your expertise and insights with our growing audience. Can't wait to see you next week.